previously on The Sean Ryan Show. Something triggered in us, this desire to go serve. Combat, yeah, that's what we do, right? That's why would you join if that wasn't the goal? Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to get my college money. Hey, good with you if you want your college money, but you don't go into Navy SEALs or Army Special Operations if you're looking for college money, right? Yeah, you don't. The the one only thing that really mattered in my military career was uh, response to September 11, 2001. Doggone pickup truck Hilux comes whipping by. This guy, legendary CIA officer, who I won't refer to here, but you've met with this great bushy bust mustache, goes, hey, cowboy, need a lift? And uh, I remember jumping into this hole. That's where the JDAM hit. And I remember looking down, Sean, and I was like, who's been eating hamburger out here? Oh, man. You, you're showing people that veterans like, hey, you can do things other than the old, oh, I'll go be a contractor. Which I believe there's over 8 billion podcasts. So we're yeah, going. everybody and their sister has a doggone podcast right now, and you're number 10. It's got to be really rewarding. All right, Chris, we're back from the break. I want to cover a little bit more about your career. At what point in your career were you at when we got Baghdadi? I had left government. I mean, I hit, or I'd left the service. I'd... I hit, um, I got promoted to colonel, uh, and then I got uh, uh, selected to continue on uh, in command, and I just, hey, uh, well, I'll just tell you, I needed to take the year off. I needed to be at home. My, I, hit, I made a vow to myself. My family could care less, but I said, each kid, their senior year of high school, I will be in the United States for I will not deploy. Sounds silly, but that was just a personal thing I wanted to do. They could kids could care less, not like, oh dad, let's go hang out together. They didn't want to hang out with me, but I wanted to be there for that for that year. I've been selected for command uh 06 command, Colonel Command, big deal, right? And it would have required me to deploy the year of my eldest kid's senior year of high school. And I asked for, you know, a waiver. Could I do this later? I said, hey, I'll go any place in the world next year. I just need one year here. And they're like, thank you very much. No. So I declined taking command. And at that point, I knew my career was over because you do that. And that's fine. You know, <laughs> I'm not, it's like, hey, no regrets, you know. Uh, but at that point, I knew my career uh, was over and I was ready to leave. And, um, cause you take, you take that job in the army, it means you're on the short list to, you know, advance. Mm -hmm. And I had to look myself in the mirror and I said, I never have done anything in my army career, you know, for myself. It's always been selfless service. And if I did this, it wouldn't be about self. Because I get all my buds like, you got to do this, man. We need you. I said, if I do this, this will be about ego. And it'll be, be about me. And how can you look yourself in the mirror and say that you're true to yourself if you do this? So it sounds kind of really like, I know, flighty. But that's where I was in my life at the time, mm -hmm. you know, and decided to leave the service. Uh, retired and became a contractor at the Pentagon. 
which was fascinating because you go from being, you know, the guy at the head of the table to be the person that can't even be brought into the meeting that you would have chaired the day before. And now they're like, which I thought was great. You know, it's really hubris, humility. It's, it was great to do that. And, uh, but man, the contracting gig, I don't know how it was for you. I was like, I need, I couldn't figure out, I need a stable job. So if you're in a government town, what do you do? Go into government. Got a permanent government job. Um, call it general serve GS job, you know, like mm-hmm. where you can't be fired. <laughs> and you get like 30 days off a year or something. I'm like, I like this. My parents are older. I always need to have some time off. And became a government employee and I had the worst job in the history. Like I was the guy I used to make fun of. I was in thing called intelligence oversight. Do you remember where you, you'd have to like initial your safe each night that you closed it to show that it was locked or the door, remember the door, you know, you had to spin the lock and initial. I'm the guy who goes around to inspect, to make sure that you initialed that. Yeah. I'm like, this you is- You went from being a special operations colonel to that? Yep. Interesting. Yeah. And I literally- it was eight hours a day. I crammed one hour of work into eight hours. It was amazing. And my friend, uh, thank God, called me one day, Chris Costa. He was running counterterrorism at the White House, was leaving, said, would you like to interview for my job? I always tell my children, always interview for a job. You're going to learn something, and who knows, you might get it. And so I interviewed I got his job. So I'm a government employee on loan from the Pentagon to the White House to run counterterrorism. That's where I get the crazy idea to defeat al-Qaeda. Part of that is ISIS. President Trump, you know, comes in, says we're going to defeat ISIS, like enough of this messing around, decentralizes decision-making, lets warfighters make decisions on how to operate. And... The leader of ISIS was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Brilliant guy. But lit, I, mean, I usually don't do good and evil when you're talking about your enemy. I don't think it's helpful. I think it colors your judgment. This guy was the definition of evil. Uh, he was an evil man. Can you describe some of the stuff? He, uh, well, the most, the most dramatic one is this... Uh, this missionary, Kayla Mueller, American missionary trying to help out over there, was kidnapped and and he, uh, he she became his, you know, basically slave. Uh, unbelievable, uh, just barbaric, not just with her, but other people. Um, and he was the head of ISIS and we're like, you know, obviously we've got to kill this guy. And well, let's get a little more in detail. What was he doing to her? Because I want you know this is I, this, this is going to be history here. Yeah, but it's already been said. And I really am, I know the family, and I really don't want to cause any more heartache. Uh, but it was barbaric. All you take the worst thing you could imagine, and he was doing that to K- Kayla Mueller. We we did an operation to go in there one night uh, to get her. Uh, she was not there. We, when I say that, our, our counterterrorism forces did, man, it was a hell of a fight. They, it was 
epic, but I wasn't there for that. I was in the White House. Uh, but yeah, so that's why I'm really reluctant, like the, the pain and suffering the family's been through. Uh, but y- you use your imagination and then some. Well, let's talk about just ISIS in general then. Yeah. You know, so some they, of the things the ISIS way they, was doing. The way they took Yazidi women, which is this weird Christian sect, and turned them into sex slaves. The way they, uh, well, you remember seeing the videos where they burned the Jordanian pilot. Think about the mass executions, beheadings. I mean, that was just par for the course. And he was the leader of that thing. And, you know, leadership matters. And they, his his forces were a representation of his, you know, barbarity, you know. He would burn people alive, behead them, put kids in cages, burn them alive, put kids in cages, put them into rivers, drown them to death. Just just groups of kids. Just pick it. You know, heads on poles, all the worst of the worst shit. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy around when he was killed, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly. That was roughly, what was that, September? Mm-hmm. Or no, was that December or January of 20? 2019. Yeah, December of 2019, I think it was. What were you picking up? I don't. The controversy was. There was a lot of controversy um, when we killed him with the drone strike. Oh no! This we we put ground force in and killed him. Okay, I'm thinking this. This is the American in Yemen. Okay. That they killed. uh, What was that guy's name? He was an American citizen that went over there. Uh, there's a book about yeah, that's the guy. You're, that was huge controversy because it's the first time we killed an American citizen, right? Yeah, Yemen, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. But so Baghdadi, man. back to Baghdadi, Baghdadi, evil of evil. Uh, everybody's looking for him. His tradecraft is really good. Like he's not. He's using couriers. Nobody gets near him with a cell phone. He's moving, but man. Sean, you know this. When our intelligence officers put their mind to it and our special operators put their mind to it, you can run, but you can't hide. Mm -hmm. And we just kept on that guy's trail. And just incrementally, you kept collapsing his space where he could maneuver. And you get, we didn't have good reporting for quite a while. But finally, you know, I think it was a driver or one of it was one of these functionaries around Baghdadi said something to one of our one of our people, one of our sources. And the word comes back like, hey, Baghdadi's in this compound. Here we go again, right? How many times have we heard this? At this point, the whole operation goes, I get cut out of it. Like I'm running counterterrorism. But CIA and our counterterrorism forces decide that they're going to keep this very close hold. Rightfully so, I get that. But I'm I'm in charge of counterterrorism, so I'm a little bit I'm a little bit butthurt. I'll tell you just straight up, like what the hell? The the thing that I think a lot of those people, the senior officials, believe is that they can control, like they know more than we do. The problem was. I've been a Green Beret. I had a whole network of people all over the military. And we had a person who was on the task force for Baghdadi, who, who was a friend, who was keeping us up to date on what's going on. So I had a whole separate, and this isn't like some leak thing or anything. We're all read on to um, 
like they just didn't want to share that particular information to us. So I'm tracking this thing. They don't even know we're tracking it. We get a we we finally get positive identification that oh yeah he's there, definitely there. Um, and then and it's this very it's an example of how we can do things really well in our government when you just let people in the field do it right. Like keep keep headquarters out of it. Intelligence officers in the field, the special operators in the field, it's just going great, collaborating. You know, maybe the special operators need a tracking tool that they don't have access to, but the intelligence community does. It's just working great, man. So finally, uh, gets down to like positive identification, definitely there. Forces trained. Now here's you had a great part in one of your episodes previous episode where you kind of talked about the evolution of our counterterrorism forces. In the past, like think about Sante, which was this great first commando raid during the Vietnam War, famous raid. Think about the bin Laden raid, where you took special you took forces, brought them together and trained them specifically for that mission. And then they did it and then they came home. We had advanced so much in our tactics, techniques, and our procedures and our professionalism of our counterterrorism forces that the force that was in uh, Iraq, Syria at the time, the counterterrorism force, they just took the mission. They're like, another another mission. Wow. No big deal. Can you believe that? No. Like, just- I mean, it was just- uh, The dudes in the field are like, we got this. Holy shit. When are we going? Backwards plan, plan our crap, send it back for approval. Like, what's all- the timeline here? Oh, you know, quick. Like, somebody will correct me. It seemed like maybe three days. That's it? For that kind of an operation? Yeah. And that, now, the president's got to sign off on that, right? Because we're taking forces that are in this contested area in Syria that is kind of under, it's not under Assad, the leader of Syria's control. It's like, the rebel area, that's where we are. We're gonna fly our forces in, because Baghdadi's smart. He's like, I'm gonna stay in an area under Assad's control, because it'll be more secure, because the Americans aren't gonna come in here, right? It'll mm-hmm. be an international incident or whatever. So of course, we're gonna go into Assad's backyard. Idlib, I think it was Idlib, I think that's the province, I forgot. Um, so President's getting briefed on this, right? I'm not briefed, but I know what's going on. So I'm like, all right, that's okay. Call my buddy at the Pentagon. He he acts like he doesn't know what's going on. I'm like, some friend you are, that's okay. Get a call. It's a Saturday. Get a call about one in the afternoon from our source in the counterterrorism task force. It's going tonight. If you're 21 years or older and use nicotine or tobacco, I want to tell you about Black Buffalo and how it's changing America for millions of consumers. Those of you that know who I am know that I spent a career in the SEAL teams and its Central Intelligence Agency. The majority of the time in those was conducting operations. And while on those operations, something that we did all the time was chew tobacco. It became kind of like a ritual. And I know of a lot of you out there who listen to me love that ritual, and I just want you to know I get it. 
Black Buffalo even has long cut, and their pouches are award-winning for all you guys out there using those white portion things. Black Buffalo has bold flavors and full pouches. Black Buffalo is full of flavor. It feels legit when you pack it and most importantly is tobacco leaf and stem free. So if you're 21 or older, currently use nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can buy their products there and they ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase at thousands of retail locations around the country. Born in the Midwest, raised in the South, Charge ahead with Black Buffalo. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Here's the situation. You've got China, Russia, Ukraine, the border. The banks seem to be collapsing. Plus, the Chinese just negotiated with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil to drop the U.S. dollar. And most Americans, including myself, feel that we're in a recession right now. But despite all the evidence, I can't tell you what's going to happen for sure. Nobody can. Yet when it comes to your money, you should understand what's at stake. That's why I partnered with Gold Co. to possibly help at times like this. Go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit. The kit shows you how to defend your money with precious metals and how listeners of the show could get up to $10,000 in bonus silver. Go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD to get your free gold and silver kit. I can't predict the future, but I can certainly prepare for it. So go to seanlikesgold.com or call 855-936-GOLD now. Performance may vary. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. When I first started this whole podcasting thing, an online store was about as far from my mind as you can get. And now, most of you already know this, but I'm selling Vigilance Elite Gummy Bears online. We actually have an entire merch collection that's coming soon. And let me tell you, it is so easy because I'm using a platform that is extremely user-friendly and that's Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I really like about Shopify is it prompts you all the things that you wanna do with your web store, like connect your social media accounts, write blog posts, just have a blog in general. Shopify actually prompts you to do this. You want people to leave reviews under your items? You can do that on Shopify. It's very simple. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to the other leading commerce platforms. Shopify is a global force for millions of entrepreneurs in over 175 countries and power 10% of all e-commerce platforms here in the United States. You can sign up right now for $1 a month it's shopify.com slash Sean. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Sean now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash Sean. It's like, thanks. Jump in my car, go to work. Go to the White House Situation Room. You know, walk in, go to the White House Situation Room. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley's there. He's got his two communicators. You know, these two, these two ki kids, they are kids, but these two signal 
computer experts and their job, because on the screen, they're going to have two screens that have the uh, uh, predator, the, int- the video feeds mm-hmm. coming in live of the target and all this stuff. And I sit down at the big table. My boss is Robert O'Brien. He's the national security advisor. He had not told me what was going on either. He comes walking in later, sees me sitting there. It's like, Chris, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm the head of counterterrorism for the president. My job's to be here. How did you know? I'm like, Robert, it's my job to know. So we're in the we're in the situation room, you know, the I'm a kid from Iowa, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. holy crap, I'm in the situation room. We're gonna do one of the one of the probably more important, like this is going to be up there with Bin Laden, Zawahiri. This is going to be up there as the top five commando hits of all time, right? And I'm there and the operation, the president is playing golf that day. And, you know, they wanted to keep him playing golf so that the press wouldn't pick up on any changes of routine. So he's out there. About five o'clock our time in Washington, D.C., the assault force launches uh, in their helicopters. And I can't remember how many helicopters it was, 12 helicopters. The issue now, you know this, but for those that aren't, you know, haven't been part of these things or are learning, flat desert, Syrian, Russian controlled, Russians are there, remember? We're over here. They have their radars on. So they can see exactly what's happening. Because remember, it's flat. It's it's like billiards. It's like a pool table. So the assault force picks up right away. uh, The chairman says something like, I hope this isn't the start of World War III. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I'm like, oh, damn, yeah, Russians, helicopters, if they shoot. There was also... Uh, the Russians had a fighter up like a suit, MiG-29. I can't remember what it was. You know, advanced doing combat air patrol over kind of the area. Okay. So now you got Russian radar on, Russian Syrian radar on. You got a dog on fourth generation fighter orbiting, and they all see our assault force pick up. And as they start flying and they cross the border... You know, that's like the come to Jesus time, right? Are the mm-hmm. Russians going to fire or not? If they fire, we're done. And the Russian radars go, I, I guess, I don't know this for a fact, but I guess, you, you know, they they can have their their status is like enemy uh, or uh, continue to monitor or something. And they turn their radars, not off, but they turn their radars to passive, meaning I guess in the in the air defense world, that means like you're not going to fire. It was like, oh man, okay. And then we saw the MiG MiG twenty nine move south. So somebody made a call like we're not screwing with these guys. Like let them go. <laughs> Nothing yeah. to see here. Like look the other way. La 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 la. But that I no kidding. You know I'd never been in the headquarters for something like that, right? I'd always either, either been in, in the truck or in, in, in a helicopter or something, not of anything this important, obviously. But uh, to see it from that perspective was completely different. You How know? did that feel? 
Just being in there. Yeah. Come on, man. Part of me is like, I would literally give my left you-know-what to be on that helicopter right now. But that's not my job anymore. My job is to be here uh, to provide advice and counsel to the president if he asks. And uh, so I thought that was a hell of a presidential decision because he knew that he knew the decision calculus on that. He knew this whole thing could go bad, really, really, like epically bad. Like Desert won at in uh, Iran in 1979. You know that bad. Like that can ruin. You know that can end your presidency, right? Yeah. Uh, and he made the call to go ahead and execute because the other one was like, why don't we just put missile strike in on it? Heck with it. And we're like, no, we got to know we got the guy. Because in this area, this era of information warfare, like they're still arguing about if so and so is still alive. You know, we're like, no, we need to go, like, we need to have some uh, his flesh to do DNA testing on. Off goes the assault force. You got your uh, drones up, filming everything. Salt Force goes in, lands, and here's the other one. Did you ever do call-outs? Like, remember in our day, you just went in and just, like, blew down the door, assaulted the the house or building, didn't give any warning. Well, during the course of the war, as the situations changed, they, now, they did a call-out, meaning the Assault Force surrounded the house— Dude with a micro, you know, what do you call it? A bullhorn or bullhorn is like, hey, let you're surrounded. Come out with your hands up, and um, lo and behold, like a bunch of women and kids start streaming out. Like I can't remember how many, like twenty of them, come streaming out of this house. Uh, Translators and interpreters are like, what's going on? Is Baghdadi? And they're like, oh yeah, he's in there. He's in there. He's got a suicide vest on, and he's uh, got three women with him that are also his wives. One of which was like fourteen or something. You know? Can you believe this? Can you believe that crap? I mean, I believe it now because the shit's going on right here in the home in the home front. You know, man, it's getting. Well, that's another conversation. Do the call out or like he's in there? Okay, well we're gonna go get time to. Time to dig him out. Uh, and uh, they send the dog in. They sent, uh, no, I think they sent a robot in, robot in first. Oh, he's here. He had built out like a fighting position slash, slash safe room in the back. They're like, oh, no, he's here. And yeah, there are three women here. <laughs> and the only way we're going to get this done is going to have to put some commandos in here to dig him out, kill his ass, right? And uh, so then... What unit is this? Uh, this is the Army. Oh, God. Did you see me wink? This is the Army counterterrorism gotcha. element that remains nameless That is that you all know. And you can say it, but I can't say it. Uh, uh, and you've had many of their members on your show before. Yeah. Because they, they were the task force that was in Syria, Iraq at the time. Okay. So they did the operation. And uh, president, we're all watching the screen, you know, and you know how watching ISR is. It's kind of like murky, and you can't really tell what's going on. But you can see it's game on time. You can see the explosions, boom, boom, boom. You're sitting there like, what's going on? 
but you don't want to ask because you know they're busy. And I got to tell you this, President, Vice President, Millie, uh, senior military leadership were all extremely, you know, patient. Because there's nothing worse. Remember when you're getting yelled at by your boss, you're like, hey, I'm working right now. I'll give you a situation report. When it's done, stop bothering me. I was really impressed that nobody, nobody put any stress on. You can see explosions going off, and you're like, "Oh man, I, this is this is the fatal funnel." You know, we nothing we can do about it. Let's see what happens. But not too much later, the report comes back. Yep, uh, that, uh, suspect or whatever. You know, the target detonated himself, uh, and we're now going to collect DNA to see if it was him. And. Uh, did you say we're now going to collect or we are not going we to collect? We are. They okay. are. And then I'm flashing back to like the poor kid who's on sensitive site exploitation, right? He's like, I got to go in there. And he has suicide vest on. And you know what happens with suicide vests? The dude's head's going to pop yep. off, right? Remember? Uh, I tell in my book the story. I had a buddy next to me who was flashing back to being in Iraq uh, when he had to go find the head. And of course, I know what's going on. Like, okay, they're going to find the head. They're going to do the forensics and they're going to do the biometrics and they'll look at the distance between the eyes, the ears, you know, all that crap. But you got to find the head first. And I'm just sitting there going, oh man, can you imagine that kid in there with this surefire, smoke billowing, probably fire going on, looking for the guy's head? And uh, the task force commander, the ground force commander, really was impressive that he would not, they call it, you know, call jackpot, jackpot indicating that the target that you were going after is either captured or killed. And he would not call jackpot, even though we know it's Baghdadi, right? It's like not calling jackpot. Finally, this, the four-star commander that's overseeing the operation, this guy's General McKenzie, he calls and goes, ground force commander, is not going to call jackpot right now, but he assesses with a strong degree of confidence that the target has been killed. And at that point, you know, you're like, oh man. Thing gets done, president leaves. I'm not leaving. Millie's not leaving, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, because we're like, they're still on target, man. Oh, and then gunfights start blowing up all around, right? Because it's the it's the classic. Wow, something's going on. So things are getting heating up, right? Mm-hmm. Gunships are making gun runs now. And the president's like, what's going on here? And we're like, Mr. President, there is a gunfight going on right now. Go, okay. Uh, so <laughs> is that what he said? Okay. Yeah, he's like, okay, all right. Um, then the, because um, we're not going to leave until the task force is back in friendly territory because there's a lot of bad stuff can still happen. So pretty much everybody's gone. I'm there. Millie's there. Maybe a couple other people. President's gone. Vice President's gone. Secretary of Defense is gone. All these people have gone because it's like, mission over. See you later. I'm like, yeah, they're still on target, you know. And um, because there's still some, you know, for us, there's still tension. Everybody, people that don't know about operations are like, whatever. High five on the way. Yeah. We want to see our guys come home. Right. So Millie and I are there. And... um, Casualty report comes in. One assaulter had stepped on a nail that had gone through his boot. 
that was the only casualty. That's it. And I said, amazing. I said, the American public, I'm worried because this was the most flawless operation that I've ever seen conducted. And the American public now is going to come to expect that level of performance, which is so hard to achieve in the military, right? Mm -hmm. Fog friction. And uh, they got it done. They came back and were um, shutting it down. And everybody, all the commanders and the military people now are like, you know, the tension is, and it's not euphoric, but everybody's kind of, you know, becoming friendly because we went through this together. And uh, McKinsey, the four-star general that oversaw the operation from Tampa, calls in to Millie, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's advising the president. He's only a couple of us left. And he goes, Chairman, do you want to know what uh, the task force name was? Because usually they just come up with some bullshit number, right? Task Force 52-9 or whatever the hell it was. Uh, we're like, yeah, sure. They go, it was, they named it after uh, Kalen Mueller. No kidding. That's amazing. Is that cool? That is amazing. They're like, justice will be served, man. Don't don't be fucking with the United States. I mean, come on, Sean. Like, what was that guy thinking? Like, he thought he was going to get away with this crap. Like, we will hunt you to the end of the earth. It might take us 25, 30 damn years, man. I, it just, I don't understand why our enemies th think that. And I know there's this narrative now, like, oh, we're soft. Anybody who believes that crap, and there's a lot of reasons they could believe it. Man, I don't know. You put, put an American fighting man pissed off, I'll go with him any day, man. That guy, I'd love to, like, man, I'd love to, Bin Laden thought the same thing, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, they're soft. They won't fight. I wonder what he'd say now, man. We will we will hunt your ass to the end of the earth, man. I mean, why do you think people think that? Yeah. Yeah, we could go on all day. We give them plenty of reasons to think it, don't we? Yeah. Their constant babble about stupid stuff and... You know, we give them plenty of information that would support their conclusion that somehow, you know, we've lost our, our martial spirit or, man, how many people have made that mistake? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think a lot of it comes from, we, I mean, we saw a lot of it in this war, you know, these last two wars and prosecuting our own guys for doing their job. That's the other thing, man, with only seven, I think most people that have served when they heard those stories, like, yeah, that's the nature of war, that happens. It's, you know, uh, I still can't tell a lot of those stories exactly what happened, but that's my thing is like, hey, when we open the can of whoop ass, when the United States decides to open the can of whoop ass, this is no joke. Yeah. And ba bad things are gonna happen. People are gonna be injured or killed. Innocents are gonna be killed. Families are going to be destroyed, man, like destroyed. Because you know, like deploying over and over again, that just destroys marital relationships. Pathologies come out from all of that stress that is completely predictable. 
And that's why we have to take going to war a hell of a lot more seriously, if you ask me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm good with going to war. Don't get me wrong. But let's just accept up front that we're going to destroy a generation of people. That's, that's my thing. And if it's worth it, let's do it. I, this was worth it. Afghanistan yeah. was worth it. You think? I think in the beginning stages it was. Yeah, we should have left. You know, I do. I think in the beginning stages it was. And then, you know, it, and then exactly what you say, you know, the PXs started getting built. Burger King showed up. Yeah. You know, green bean coffee showed up. Pizza Hut showed up. It's Nashville Airport. I chuckled when I came in yeah. yesterday. It's like, green beans here. And then, and then you begin, you start to realize this is a fucking business. Yeah. This isn't war. This it's is a, a fucking business. It's a business. Well, this is war made to conduct business. Mm -hmm. And that's that's when I started to realize a lot of this is fucking bullshit. But um the but hustle. Yeah, but I do I do think in the beginning stages that yeah. Should have dropped the hammer and left. Yeah. It was when the bureaucracy came in. They tied our hands behind their back. It's like fighting with one leg. I always said it should Afghanistan should have stayed at 200, 300 special operators. That way, uh, and I get yelled at now by like the generals and the senior people. Like, you don't understand, Chris. It's like, no, I think I do. Actually, I yeah. was there. Yeah. We should have kept that a special operations war. We should have just used indigenous. We should have used the host nation. You can't want it more than they do, right? And when we industrialized that thing, like you described, and everybody started getting paid, uh, it's all over then. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it just, it's, it got to a point where I felt like I was fooled to go in. I and, um, you had the same thing. I felt like now I know who the sucker is. It's me. Yeah. You had the same thing? Oh, yeah. What'd that feel like? I, I, it still bothers me. Still not over it. I, I say the same thing. You know, and it 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 sucks. I don't know what to tell kids. You know, I mean, like I have a big media presence. Everybody knows I was a SEAL. Everybody knows that I contracted for CIA, and a lot of a, I get a lot of emails and messages and DMs and from youth that wanted to fall into those footsteps, just like we did, and. I got to be honest, Chris. I don't. I don't know what to tell them these what days. Else? Oh man, that breaks my heart. What would you tell them? I back to my dad. Like there's there's absolute integrity and in service. If that's something that's drawn to you, um, but take care of yourself too. Yeah. <laughs> um, there. I mean, there's great nobility and service, and you know we always talk about. Who do you fight for? The guy and the person on the left and right. And uh, yeah, I guess it really comes down to that. But I, man, it's like accountability, dude. I mean, it, there's, there, I, I sense that our leadership, their example is breaking faith with those that are serving under them. That's, yeah. Cause I was always raised like, do as I, do as I say, do as I do. And I'm telling you, man, working at the Pentagon and you get exposed to all the politics and how that works and the general officers and how advancement goes there. I literally was like, I'm seeing people that are do as I say, not do as I say, 
not as I do. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, that's bullshit because that's not the way I was raised. And I'll tell you what, I'm hearing it when you see these dumbass, these decisions. Now, the political civilian leadership can make any decision they want. They're allowed to. That's how it works. There's that military, senior military level that is supposed to provide their advice. And the, and the fact there's a disconnect, I think, with a lot of the people that are seeing stupid civilian decisions that are being made and military leadership not standing up and saying this is wrong. And so they're down there in the they're down there in the trenches, right? They're down there in the team room. And they're being brought up in a certain way. Speak your mind, integrity, ethics, morality, all that stuff that we were was embedded in us as warriors, right? And then they see their leadership not acting the same way. There's there's a di- dichotomy, a disconnect, and that's that to me is like that's what really worries me, man. It's like there's there's a break breaking of faith and trust and confidence. I that's what I'm seeing. I see it too, and you know the the few the few acquaintances, friends that I have left in the community in the special operations community, which is not very many anymore. They all say the same thing: they don't trust the leadership. You know, did, they, did you feel that way when you were in SEAL teams? No, there was always one. Yeah, there, there was, was a, always there one was a handful, that, a handful but, like, but you knew who they were. All in all. No, I didn't feel like that. I did start to feel like that. Um, you know, I'm going to get my years messed up. I really started to feel like that. I did a deployment with the agency in a in Lashkarga. Mm-hmm. And that was supposed to be, from what I was briefed, the biggest offensive force since, since Fallujah. And... I remember when the ROEs came out. Now I didn't fall under those ROEs. Right. That was that was the Marine, um, the Marines that were going to take that entire. I think that was they were going to take the entire province, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. But I remember when the ROEs came out from the administration at the time, which was the Obama administration's. It was if you are shot at, and the enemy drops their weapon, you're not allowed to shoot back. And when I heard that come out, that was a turning point in my mindset where I was like, these fucking people that we're fighting for give a shit more about our enemy than they do about us. These people are chopping our heads off. They're dismembering us and stuffing our privates in our mouths. They're burning people alive. They're beheading people. They're raping fucking girls. And boys. And they're raping boys. I mean, they. And and this is this is our ROE. The f- are we doing here? You yeah, know, what, what, and half, and it seemed. I mean, you never know because it's the media, right? But and they do a great job at propaganda. But you know, and then and then you look at the media, and it they make it appear like everybody in America back home is like for this shit. And, it, and 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 you get the feeling like, what the f- am I doing over here, man? These people, they don't even, they don't give a f- if I'm over here. The VA is a disaster. It's a disaster for all these guys coming home. I've told multiple, I haven't told, but 
that's that's what this show started as is a platform for guys to tell their story and look at the fucking trauma these guys are dealing with when they come home but we made a decision this country and this is why this is important to me beyond here you see, we made a decision as a country like strategy matters i don't know what that means to tell you the truth but we decided to fight a war with one formation our special operations formation right they deployed again and again and again. Now, big army, big Marine Corps, they deployed as well. So I'm not like, this isn't like giving the finger to all those that served as well, because it was necessary. Well, it probably wasn't necessary if you would have just kept it a special operations war, but nonetheless. So I, I'm, I always get yelled at like, oh, you're diminishing the sacrifice of conventional forces. No, I'm not. But the force that fought this counterinsurgency, counterterrorism war, counterterrorism war, were, were special operators across all of the services, you know, and like the sacrifice, man, and that, like, my, I just remember, uh, like, there's this thing called uh, Mission First Men Always. This was some sort of act some sort of thing that we always were trained on mission first men always i was like i don't know what that means and i'd always get yelled at for asking this question like hey what does that mean well and i get this tap that i'm like actually they're mutually exclusive in combat <laughs> because and i'd be like but there's going to be a time where you have to go this man is going to be destroyed to accomplish the mission so what are you saying? Why don't we just call it like it is? <laughs> Let's just be honest with each other. The mm -hmm. mission comes first. Yeah. And I'm good with that. But my problem is we sold the military as some sort of, you know, opportunity for improvement and all that stuff. And that's good. But at the end of the day, it's about going, it's about combat. Mm -hmm. And you as a, fighter like just you need to recognize you're completely expendable i always knew i was uh but i i would always get i felt bad you know the moral guilt thing is when you'd have a kid and you like get in the truck huh no we're going up that road and somebody's going to get blown up and it could be you yeah <laughs> and the kid would look at you and be like i was like this is what we do i think if we were just more honest about the essence of combat, but then that comes back to your question, your point. Would anybody ever join if they knew? <laughs> I think they would, actually. I think if we were just honest with everybody and didn't see this as some sort of jobs program or some shit like that, it's like, no. That's my that's my hobby horse, man. I was like, just be honest about the nature of what we do or what they do in the military. And I think there's too much confusion about that. We do we one formation, I mean yeah, and you just like, it's all right, but the trauma that has been inflicted on a whole generation of special operators is, uh, is you see it. It's a shame, you know, and-, and You think and it's preventable? I think it would help a hell of, I think it would help a hell of a lot if the country was behind us. I think it would help a hell you of know? a lot too if we fought our wars understanding that you can't, like that comes down to, Special force, special operators can't be mass produced. You know, to, like, 
Shinseki, Army Chief of Staff, gets fired because he said, don't fight a 12-division war with 10 divisions. When we went into Iraq, Rumsfeld fires his ass, right? But he's absolutely right. Like, these are the decisions that matter. And the American public needs to understand, like, oh, how much we spend in defense matters, how big our army is. And then, like, don't take on a 12-division war with 10 divisions. Don't take on a special operations war with too few special operators. Dude, we just burned through them. We just burned through them. Yeah. Didn't we? Oh, yeah, we did. It's like, hey, some, hey, real quick, I'd be in there and, you know, your commander, you care about your men like desperately, right? But you still have to make your mission. Like, well, we're in, okay, we're back. We're back from Iraq, refit, get our equipment ready, get everybody's paperwork ready, take two weeks off, come back and get ready to start uh, pre-mission prep and training for the next rotation. And the only two people that I could really trust to tell me what's going on, chaplain and the the surgeon, the doctor. I just say like, how are we looking? They're like, sir, coming undone. It's like, can we get him out the door again? Doc would be like, everybody's on, I'm, I'm literally shoveling sleeping pills out the door. I'm shoveling uh, consults with therapy and all this out the door. I say, can we get them out the door again, Doc? He goes, we'll get them out the door again, sir. But that's what's required, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, when you fight a war with too few people. And we just shattered them, man. You're like, oh, man. So you know your people, right? You're like, a marriage isn't going to survive another deployment. You know, you go in, you're like, hey, Sergeant so-and-so, why don't we, uh, why don't you stay behind this, this trip on rear detachment? No, sir, I got to go. Can't leave my team behind, right? Yep. So that's my, all right, that was pretty dark, huh? It is pretty dark. Yeah, I thought we were going to be more happy. I thought <laughs> we were going to be like, I thought we were going to be more positive. That's some dark, that's some dark stuff, man. It is, but you know, Sorry. people need to talk about it. People need to understand yeah. it, you know, people need to appreciate what the f- we were doing over there, you know, they do. And a lot of them don't. But um, where were you on Gaddafi when we got him? I was, you know, your lead-in episode, the lead-in thing was uh, what you carry, right? Mm-hmm. And I told you, I want to go in to a denied area with a credit card and a passport. I actually tried to get into Libya. That thing, you know, Obama administration put the red line in and they're like, started bombing them. So I was at the Pentagon. I got my boss to agree that I could go to Stuttgart, Germany on a, on a visit. And I just told my boss, I'm like, hey, I'm going to Libya. I just want to be completely clear with you. Like, I know I'm at the Pentagon. I know this isn't supposed to happen, but I'm going over there and I'm going to go to Libya and I'm going to raise a guerrilla army. <laughs> I'm not, you could, you could laugh. So I got my ass over there. My buddy was running a task force, link up with him, intel folks upstairs uh, over the coffee shop. Um, I knew because I'd been through training with them. I was like, okay, I'm your guy. Tell me when I infill. They're like, okay. Uh, the, Brit, the Brits ended up, you know, the Brits went in and got rolled up uh, by I couldn't tell what faction, you know, there were two, there were all these different factions. The Brits went in, it's all public record, so it's not secret. 
They rolled in. You, you, we were talking about link up in Afghanistan. They did that, but at a commercial airfield, and the opposition element said, "Thank you for visiting Tripoli or wherever." Clink, clink. You know your worst nightmare, right? Getting compromised on infill, and uh, I was like, "I don't care. I'm still good." The Secretary of Defense at the time was uh, Gates, and he said, "There will be no American boots in the ground." I thought he meant everybody but intel officers and special operators. He met everybody. Intel got in there eventually. So no, never got to do it, um, but was desperate to. But when they got Gaddafi, I was back at the Pentagon. You were? Yeah. Did you have any any part in that? No. You? No. You know no. anybody? No. Hey, so I just remember this old dude, Vietnam vet. It's like, this is bad. This country, uh, Libya is gonna come undone all the weapon stores because Gaddafi had like tons of guns and ammo. He said, all the um, terrorist elements are going to come up from the South, get all that shit and take it back South down to Mali, Niger, uh, Nigeria, uh, Burkina Faso. And it's going to be game on. I just remember listening to that old guy and I'm like, oh, here he goes again, giving a history lesson. Was he right? We opened that can of worms. Dealing with it now, right? Yeah. How did you get the Secretary of Defense to position? I think that Baghdadi operation actually had something to do with it. The president didn't know me from anybody. I'm a government employee, remember? I'm I'm just I work for whatever president. I'm on loan from the Pentagon. I'm doing counterterrorism for the president. President didn't know me from anybody. I told you I had this idea about Al-Qaeda. Had a partner that came in with me, Cash Patel, who had access to the president. Um, and so I explained what I was doing, what we wanted for Al-Qaeda. Cash is the only person that can make this call is the president because Secretary of Defense, head of the CIA, head of State Department, aren't interested in this, so we're going to have to have the president get involved. And I'm like, you talk to him a lot, right? He goes, oh, yeah, I talk to him a lot. I'm like, let's partner. Um, the Baghdadi hit. The next day, the president gives a public announcement and um, does the, you know, the rollout. And I got to go to it, and I got to see how it works behind the scenes. He goes and gives a speech. He comes out and he turns to me, me, my crappy Joseph A. Bank suit. Remember the one I was telling you about? Mm -hmm. Five for $200. I'm probably wearing one of those. I think I just threw it out or donated it. And he turns to me, the president of the United States turns to me and goes, Chris. And I'm literally like, uh-huh. It's like, shit. I go up to the president and he goes, don't let them walk back my comments. I was like, Roger, sir. <laughs> he goes, said some stuff in there on purpose. Don't let them walk back my comments. And I was like, okay. And uh, I left and I went back to my office and I sent a note out to 
the community, the heads of the community. And I said, the president was very deliberate about what he was saying today. His target audience was not the American people. It was young people thinking about joining ISIS. That's why it was very bombastic. The president was like, you know, you will die. They, you know, you will die if you join ISIS. Don't even think about it. Now, I know information operations, psychological operations. I was a Green Beret. I knew exactly what he was doing, right? It's like his target audience is not, you know, my mom. It's the, it's the world where kids are thinking about joining ISIS. I said, we've completed this phase of the operation with the death of Baghdadi. We can transition to a more steady state. You know, I used all the buzzwords, more steady state counterterrorism operations. Thank you for all you have done. If you have any questions about uh, next uh, this, this announcement and the next stage, feel free to call me. Nobody normally, you know, in Washington, D.C., some be like, that, that was a little, I don't, I'm going to go talk to the press and say, that's not exactly what happened. Nothing leaked. So I think that was the one where the president goes, this guy, the tall, white-haired guy, wearing, I had better glasses then, you know, that guy with the cheap suit, he can get stuff done. And that's where I came to the president's attention. And then there was a guy that had worked on the campaign, a young, young gentleman who was basically an administrative assistant secretary type who, like you, I work with everybody. I don't care what your rank station in life is. If you're interested, come on along. I met this guy. His brother was going to school at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. I said, oh, my God. And uh, he he had worked on the campaign. And I helped develop him as a uh, counterterrorism person and took him to meetings that he normally wouldn't get to go to. And um, having, I have to go back to the Pentagon. I told you I had the worst job in the history of the Pentagon in intelligence oversight. I have to go back to that, Sean. And I'm like, walking across the street between going into the White House, he's coming out. He goes, Chris, how are you doing? I said, I am, and I, I'm, I'm kind of half full guy. I was like, I'm in a bad place. He goes, what's going on? He says, I got to go back to the Pentagon. He goes, do you want a political job? I was like, what's that? Do you want to be appointed as a political official? I was like, I'll do anything, anything to not have to go back to the Pentagon. He goes, come with me. Now, this guy that everybody kind of was just, you know, off in the corner, nobody knew what he was. We walk in to the personnel office. He walks in, looks at one of the senior officials and goes, hey, get Chris a job. They all like jump to attention. This 24-year-old kid <laughs> was a big hit. He's a serious player in the political side. I didn't know it. And so I got a political job uh, and I went back to the Pentagon. So I changed from a government employee, right, to there are usually about 3,000 political appointees that the administration gets to pick. Okay. And then you go in and you run the large agencies, in this case, the Department of Defense. There are probably a couple hundred civilian officials, and they rotate out every time the administration changes. And I got one of those jobs. It started there, and then um, I got a call and said, hey, would, 
we think you can do more. And I'm like, I'm good because I'm fighting Al-Qaeda, right? I'm good. Pentagon, $18 billion for special operations, 68,000 forces. I'm good. And they offered me to go to take a presidentially appointed Senate confirmed position, which I talked about, which means you are now you're no longer just a you're a political appointee, but you're at the top of the top shelf and back to greatest strength, greatest weakness. Parents always said, if you're going to do something, do the very best you can. You don't do it halfway. So I'm like, well, sure, I'm interested. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I was raised. President asked you to serve. So then I got that job at the National Counterterrorism Center. I'm out there loving life, all good, don't want anything else. New, anybody who knows any, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, you always have your reconnaissance network out, just keeping track on what's going on, seeing what tax are coming in on you. And the word was out that Esper, who was the Secretary of Defense, was going to get, was president was unhappy to him. After uh, Lafayette Square, George Floyd, all that stuff, uh, you know, where the president went out, you know, they cleared, remember that? Where they cleared the the uh, park, the president went across the street to that church. I do. I do yeah, well, uh, Esper got a lot of flack for that and started kind of getting waffly about his role in that. And that, ups- I, what I understand is that upset the president. And uh, then the other one, which let's talk about later, was war on drugs. Like, the president was flipping serious about securing our border. Everybody thinks it's just about, like, immigration. No, it's everything. And, you know, the Department of Defense was not doing enough to stop the f- illicit flow of narcotics into the United States. I know this. So the president was upset that he wasn't getting support from the Pentagon and so I'm hearing all this, and there are only three of us that are eligible to replace him because you have to be presidentially appointed, Senate confirmed. There are only three of us that have some military background that are eligible. I did not politic. I didn't want the job. And, uh, and was, you get these calls. You better be ready. Something might happen. I was like, oh, man, what? You know, just be ready for a phone call. I want to tell you about this business venture I've been on for about the past seven, eight months, and it's finally come to fruition. I've been hell-bent on finding the cleanest functional mushroom supplement on the planet, and that all kind of stemmed from the psychedelic treatment I did, came out of it, got a ton of benefits, haven't had a drop of alcohol in almost two years. I'm more in the moment with my family. And that led me down researching the benefits of just everyday functional mushrooms. And I started taking some supplements. I found some coffee replacements. I even repped a brand. And, you know, it got to the point where I just wanted the finest ingredients available, no matter where they come from. And it, it, it got to this point where I was just going to start my own brand. And so we started going to trade shows and and looking for the finest ingredients. And in doing that, I ran into this guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name's Laird Hamilton, and his wife, Gabby Reese. And they have an entire line of supplements with all the finest ingredients. And we got to talking, turns out, 
they have the perfect functional mushroom supplement. It's actually called Performance Mushrooms. And this has everything. It's USDA organic. It's got chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane, miyataki. This stuff is amazing for energy balance, for cognition. Look, just being honest, see a lot of people taking care of their bodies. I do not see a lot of people taking care of their brain. This is the product, guys. And so we got to talking and our values seemed very aligned. We're both into the functional mushrooms. And after a lot of back and forth, I am now a shareholder in the company. I have a small amount of ownership and I'm just, look, I'm just really proud to be repping and be a part of the company that's making the best functional mushroom supplement on the planet. You can get this stuff at Laird Superfoods, Dot com. You can use the promo code SRS. That'll get you 20% off these performance mushrooms or anything in the store. They got a ton of good stuff. Once again, that's LairdSuperfoods.com. Use the promo code SRS. That gets you 20% off. You guys are going to love this stuff. I guarantee it. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through, and we really appreciate the support. Thank you. Let's get back to the show. Nothing happens. I'm like, oh, thank God. Election happens. There was some thought that he was going to clean house that night. That doesn't happen. I'm like, thank God. I'm just going to stay here at the National Counterterrorism Center. I love these people. I love this mission. Al-Qaeda, we're making progress. This is awesome. And then Monday morning, I go into work. It's COVID. Nobody's there. I'm like the only one in the office. Get in there early. Beautiful day, man. Drinking my Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Phone rings. Nobody picks it up. Finally, I'm like, somebody better get the phone. Hello? Like, uh, Director Miller? Yes. Get to the White House now. I'm like, no. They're like, yep. Uh, so the president made the decision and selected me. I think it was probably because of my my coworker, Cash Patel. So I'm working counterterrorism at the White House. Cash is working with me. When I leave, he become he replaces me. So I'm just guessing. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. But you get the call and you go over there. And it's in my book. It's a pretty funny story. I was dressed pretty poorly. And uh, and you, they always ask you, you know, you, they're not going to send you in to see the president if you're going to say no. So, you know, like, hey, president's going to offer you this job. Are you going to take it? And, and you know, it's so funny. You can watch The West Wing, you know, that show from whenever with uh, Martin Sheen or whatever. I serve at the pleasure of the president. You know, it's like this great show where everybody just serves, you know. But that seems to work for, for that show. But it actually works for my show, too, because when the president of the United States asks you to serve, I don't know, where are you on this? I'm like, I don't care what flavor, fashion, or whatever. The pre it's the president of the United States, and they're asking you to serve. You're going to serve. Yeah. So obviously I said, 
Yeah. Knowing it was going to be a, a hell of a hell of a ride, which it was. Yeah, it sounds like it. What was so what did that conversation go like when when you got into the White House? Go in there. Uh, I'm wearing crappy shoes because I was I decided that I was going to turn uh, the National Counterterrorism Center into business casual, like try to change the, you know, the the culture. So I'm wearing crappy shoes. I've got khaki slacks on. I didn't have a tie. I had to borrow a tie. Fortunately, I'd thrown a blue blazer into my car. And all I can think of is the president's going to look at my shoes and go, I've got a better idea. You know, what, what's wrong with you? Uh, so I'm hiding. I'm trying to hide my feet. You go in. president's sitting behind the resolute, the, his desk, right? There's, there's a chair in front of him, and I sit down. And I said, you know, morning, Mr. President. He goes, uh, hey, Chris, uh, I'm firing Esper. You're up. And I was like, got it, sir. He said, okay, you ready? I'm like, yes, sir, I'm ready. He said, okay, come back this evening. We'll talk more. That was it. Salute and execute, move out. Went back that evening and uh, got guidance, which was pretty simple. It's like, hey, listen, I've been saying we're going to wind down these wars. Nobody's listening to me. Do it. Of course, I believe in that. We talked about that. I'm like, yeah, I got it. I'm with you, sir. Because okay, go get it done. I said, all right. There was no talk about like, oh, let's overthrow the government using the military. People, you see this crazy conspiracy shit. It's like most professional conversation. Boss gave guidance. Salute and execute. Totally within the boundaries. I'm like, got this. Let's go do it. And off we went. Did you have time to come up with a plan on how to wind those down, or did you have any idea how you I've were been gonna, thinking about it? How were you going to do it? Uh, well, the I looked at Afghanistan. We had eighty five hundred, no, eighty eight hundred there. Because when I was work, when I was working at the White House in uh, counterterrorism, when I was still a government employee, when I was you know on loan from the Pentagon. You could see that negotiations were ongoing. It didn't take like it didn't take like a genius. It didn't take Henry Kissinger to figure out that this war is coming to an end. There's going to be a negotiated settlement. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm like, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get an agreement. It's not going to be pretty. Wars aren't ending. Wars is tough. You know, nobody's going to be happy, but we got an agreement going. So we need to figure out what Afghanistan will look like with our presence post-peace agreement. So the Department of Defense was like, if we, our minimum force required to protect the United States from attack from Afghanistan is 8,800 people. I was like, that's bullshit. Here they go again. Because I'd been through this circus before where they would give a number and they'd like, the world will come to an end if one, and then we'd, we'd drop below and nothing bad would happen. Syria is an example. If we go below 1,600, the world will come to an end. Went to 800, or 800 there now. Nothing, like, what? Mm-hmm. World didn't come to an end. So check this one out. Uh, I commissioned a young government employee to do a war game with all of the key players to determine what the minimum force structure in Afghanistan was necessary to do this. 
keep intel on Al-Qaeda or, or terrorist groups that could pose a threat to the United States, have a strike force sufficient to execute targets when they're identified. Uh, and then, so they all worked it. And we used mid-level people because the senior level people didn't want to participate because they knew, I suspect they knew that it was bullshit, right? That 8,800. So they were like, we're not doing this. So I did a bunch of bureaucratic tricks and forced them to provide subject matter experts, which is what I really wanted. I didn't want like political figures. You know, I didn't want to like stuff shirt, stuff suit talking heads. I wanted like professionals in there. So government works great when you just let the professionals talk and take politics out of it. So they all did this big war game and they came up with, we want to have one operating base. We need 800 people there. Commandos, we need helicopter pilots, we need cooks and bottle washers. They did the whole thing. And we'll have one counterterrorism base that we can keep fly predators out of, all that stuff. I was like, thanks. This is in the, you know, someday somebody's going to get those things FOIA declassified. Because I still get tons of shit from like people like, that didn't happen, that didn't happen. Well, I wasn't stupid. It's in the it's in the official records of of the White House, and they're all classified. That's fine. Someday, you know, people are going to look at it like, oh wow, that really did happen. I can't. I don't have anything. I like. I can't give you a briefing chart. Maybe the kid from Mass, uh, whatever, from the Massachusetts Air National Guard has them. That was a bad joke. That was a bad joke, wasn't it? Yeah, but it was kind of funny. It was good to go. I feel. I mean, not for that kid. You know, the kid who got rolled up Oh, yesterday. I know who you're talking okay. about. Um, the kid that just got rolled up for embarrassing the U.S. government. Yeah, with all the secret slides from uh, the Pentagon and yeah. other places. Yeah. So maybe he's got the sl- – maybe he has the official record of this war game that indicated 800 people was the minimum force required to maintain a counterterrorism presence and protect America. I then went out and I talked to the, uh, t- the commander on the ground who I'd grown up with. And um, said, hey, um, well, president wanted to go to zero. I knew the number was 800. When the decision was made, a bunch of us agreed that 2,500, we would draw down from 8,800 to 2,500. And the reason we did that is I thought it was it's weird because I thought that was one of the really good decisions we made where we gave plenty of trade space for the next administration. We're like, we didn't go to zero. We didn't go to 800, which is minimum force, because we knew that. We actually went to 2,500, and I talked to the ground, the commander there. I said, 2,500, can you work it? He goes, we can do it. We're good. Got it. So lo and behold, I actually talked to the people on the ground, Because the echo chamber in D.C. was all 8,800, 8,800, 8,800. So at that point, the president made this, the president had made the decision to go to 2,500. And that's what we left with in Afghanistan. Because quite honestly, and it's in the books right now, most people don't care about this. I understand that. And, it, you know, it's all right. But it's still pretty raw, I think, for a lot of us in our generation that did that. Um, you know, I thought... It was like 
2,500, we can maintain pr- uh, pressure and it will give the incoming administration a chance to recalibrate if they want to. I, I actually thought it was a, a good, solid plan. Of course, it's been destroyed Like now that we're, we, we jammed the Biden administration. Hey, can I give you my final, not CYA, but bitch? I'd learned in the military that you can blame the last guy for 30 days. Up to 30 days, you get out of jail free card. It was all the last guy. I would never have done that. But once you go over 30 days as a commander and as a leader, you own it, right? Have you ever heard that? I haven't. Yeah, I, agree I wonder if I just heard that wrong. That's why I was asking. But I always learned that. Like, you got 30 days. So this is why this whole thing, like, we got jammed by the Trump administration. It was a shitty deal. Yet... You, you had a chance to change things. I thought we gave enough trade space in there, maneuver space to do something. Well, they would have started killing. They would have started fighting again. Who cares? We, we were going to drop the hammer on them, man. Like our counterterrorism forces, like they'd, they'd pulled back an operational tempo to the point where, you know, you can talk to people. They'd be like, this is the most boring deployment I've ever done. I'm thinking, thank God. We only hit one target in three months. You know, you're like, okay. Uh, But during that time, uh, our counterterrorism forces had built out like the target list. And everybody was getting lazy. The enemy was getting lazy. And we had on the table, like Vietnam War, you know, they did the uh, bombing, like when the... um, North Vietnamese attacked in the South in 73. They did this huge bombing offensive, right? Literally bombed them back to the negotiating table. Clearly, counterinsurgency is different war. You know, you didn't have tanks coming down down the main supply routes and the main roads. Uh, But I felt we had the capability, if they decided to start attacking us again, they being the Taliban primarily, that we would have dropped the hammer on them and it would have hurt them so bad. It would have been like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Take the foot off the gas. Like, can we meet for conversations again? Can we start the negotiation? So I was not, I thought we had a meaningful way to terminate the war in a way that wouldn't be embarrassing to the United States and would still allow us to keep a counterterrorism presence there. Makes That's pretty heavy, life. man, but yeah. it'll all come out in the history someday. Right now, it's just too political. Everybody's like, yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, what, what were your thoughts when you saw how it all went down? Uh, so Friday the 13th, fitting, right? Where were you? Yeah, just at work, just a normal work day. Got up, was watching the news. Uh, new, Knew the Taliban was on the offensive. I knew that the technique we used, remember when I was telling about, like, call them on the walkie-talkie? They were doing it in reverse this time, right? Yeah. They were calling the Afghan security forces and going, you know, Uncle Ahmed, uh, this is cousin, or this is your nephew. Stand by. Uh, you want to surrender? Nope. White flag goes up. I'm your hello, how do I become a member of the Taliban? <laughs> uh, so I, I'm like pattern recognition. They're doing it now. They've got the momentum. It's working well. Very predictable. You'd hear those, 
you'd hear those stentorian voices of like, oh, the Taliban won't take over the country for 90 days or something. I'm like, this thing's over, right? I'm like, this thing, they've got the momentum. They're doing exactly what we did, but in reverse. Got up that morning, Friday the 13th, turn on the news. They said, uh, Taliban forces are massed on the outskirts of Kabul. And I flash back, forgot the name of the circle at the south of, you've been there, the south of Kabul that's on Highway 1. That's like, you'd always use that as a rally point when you were heading south Mm -hmm. on the road. Or when you were coming back in, you'd always use that as like a place where you kind of like rally and stuff. And I had this vision of like a line of Hilux pickup trucks full of Taliban fighters, right? You got the Mm -hmm. picture? Yeah. You got the picture? I saw them lined up there. I I could just see it in my mind. I'm like, we got them right where we want them. Because what's the one good, one thing we do well as an American military? We can blow shit up with air power. And the whole problem with counterinsurgency is getting the enemy to mass, right? When you get them to mass, like, don't do that because we are going to bring in, we're going to drop the hammer on you. I was like, we got them right where we want them. We're going to smoke their ass, and uh, we're going we're to bounce them back for a couple weeks. They're going to have to refit, rearm, probably retrain. <laughs> uh, and then about an hour later, the announcement comes to the Pentagon that the United States will provide no additional support to uh, the Afghan government. And I was like, the war is lost. That's infuriating. I mean, I was a mess. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us were. <sighs> well, on that note, <laughs> here we are. Yeah, man. Um, I had a complete meltdown, dude. Yeah. And I'm I'm supposed to be a well-adjusted veteran, right? Ooh. Yeah. I'm like, wow. If I'm feeling this way. Can you imagine what others are feeling, man? I just felt horrible. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Too much information, my friend. Well, let's take a break. All right. Next on The Sean Ryan Show. I've heard you say that the biggest threat to the United States right now is the fentanyl crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. Why do you think that? over everything else, over China, over Russia, over all the other things that we're facing. First meeting, I got to go into the Oval Office. A Mormon segment had been attacked and a bunch of people had been killed. Americans had been killed. One of the drunk cartels took over a town in the south of Mexico and just like was basically took the town over because I was doing transnational threats as well as counterterrorism. And at the time, the president said uh, 77,000 Americans are being killed each year due to illicit drugs coming in from south of the border. Today's show is sponsored by HelixSleep.com. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to HelixSleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it and was matched with the Midnight Lux. 
Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your front door, shipped for free. When you receive your Helix mattress, you'll be hooked. It's so easy to unbox and you won't believe how well you sleep. You'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed. Helix mattresses are fiberglass free and cradle your body for essential support in every sleeping position. They have a 10 year warranty and Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash SRS. That's helixsleep.com slash SRS. This is their best offer yet, and it's not going to last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.